This morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 12 and can be found on page 977 of the Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 12, beginning to read at verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan... He is divided against himself. How then can this kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions, unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil Say anything good, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, And by your words, you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But as we think about this difficult and sobering passage, let us uh, pray and ask for God's help. Paul says this in Romans, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we recognize that our knowledge is limited and your wisdom is great. And so, Father, we ask that you would be pleased by your Spirit to reveal things to us about our world, about ourselves, and about the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
We live in a time where we are obsessed with giving our verdict. Every morning I fall out of bed and I kind of stumble into the kitchen. I'm quite a sight, let me tell you. And I turn on the radio, and within a second of turning on the radio, I hear the word Brexit. Every morning the chat is about the verdict we made in the referendum or didn't make, and, or the verdict on the Prime Minister by her party, or the verdict on the deal in the EU or in, the, in Parliament. It's verdict, verdict, verdict. We love expressing our verdict about the latest X Factor or Strictly candidates. Do you know, more 18 to 22-year-olds voted in the last X Factor than the last general election. We love chatting about our verdicts on the latest BBC News item or Facebook post as we relax with friends in Cafe Nero, or we share our verdict on the latest celebrity scandal as we stand by the office coffee machine and pretend that we're working. We love giving our verdict. Yet there's a strange irony in our culture when it comes to Jesus Christ, because lots of us assume that our verdict on him doesn't matter. We think our verdict can wait, or we don't want to save away, that we can sit forever in the middle. See, lots of us love giving our verdict on almost any other issue, but lots of us assume that when it comes to Jesus, our verdict doesn't matter. But as we see in this passage in Matthew chapter 12, uh, we see why our verdict on Jesus matters. We see, as you set out on your on your handouts, we see that our verdict on Jesus is unavoidable. It's inevitable and it's crucial. See, first of all, in this passage, we see that our verdict on Jesus Christ is unavoidable. See, many people assume that uh, what Jesus did in the first century doesn't matter a whole amount uh, today. So why is there any need to respond at all? But what we see here is that Jesus' works are so world-changing that a verdict on him is unavoidable. Now, where do we see this? Well, um, back on page 974, in verse 22, we see that a situation emerges where a demon-possessed man is brought to Jesus. Now, we'll get to the demon possession in a moment. But the man is blind and is mute, but then Jesus heals him. But interestingly in this passage, the focus is not on the healing, but rather on the verdict that follows. Have a look at verse 23. All the people were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. The Pharisees, the religious establishment, and they claim that Jesus is healing by the power of Beelzebub. It's another name for Satan. It's a shocking verdict, isn't it? But their response, as shocking as it is, shows us that a verdict on Jesus is unavoidable as soon as you encounter his work. Now, how is that? Well, many of us assume today that these accounts of possessions and Jesus casting out demons belongs to a kind of primitive view of the world, where people kind of believed in all that supernatural stuff. But, but now we're more enlightened, and those things are behind us. But actually, that story doesn't really fit the evidence Uh, The Sadducees, they're um, another group of religious leaders. They come up and oppose Jesus later. And uh, the Sadducees denied that demons and angels existed. So there was a debate back then, uh, as there is now. It's not that we've kind of somehow become more enlightened 
uh, uh, than these primitive guys. But the question still stands, does what Matthew claims here about Jesus casting out this demon, is that real history? Well, I think there's a couple of things that show us that it is. See, first of all, it's worth noting that this is not your classical way of describing an exorcism. If you were to describe an exorcism, this is the wrong way to go about it. See, in a typical exorcism in the first century, I don't know if you know this, but you would get some object and then perform some ritual on this object with the hope that the demon would then disappear. So um, in uh, the centuries before Jesus, in the bit of, um, uh, bit of history we've got there, there's a the record of someone burning a, a fish liver, apparently. That's how you get rid of demons uh, before uh, to get rid of this demon. So if, if Matthew was fabricating this, he's gone about it all the wrong way. There's no object, there's no ritual, it's just Jesus casting out the demon with a word. But secondly, and more persuasively for me, notice that even Jesus' fiercest opponents cannot deny what Jesus has done. His works are so in the public, they're so open, that they can't deny it that this has taken place. It would have been so easy, wouldn't it, for them to say, this is a magic trick, or Jesus has performed some sort of trickery on you. But Jesus is so public, his works and power is so obvious, that they are left with no other option than to grasp for this desperate explanation that Jesus is using the power of Satan. But Jesus goes on to show that conclusion does not hold water. First, he says in verse 25, any kingdom that will attack itself will not stand. I mean, imagine a football game where the players started attacking each other. I've heard of managers attacking the players and players attacking the manager, but not players attacking the players. I mean, just imagine what would happen if you've got the striker, they're running towards uh, the opposition's goal, and suddenly one of the defenders from their team slide tackles them in the six-yard box. It wouldn't work, would it? I'm writing that. I know enough about football to know that that would uh, not do very well. So why would Satan be attacking his own players? And secondly, in verse 27, Jesus says, what are you saying about your own exorcists? Jesus wasn't the only one to do exorcisms. There were Jewish exorcisms. So why are they casting out demons by God's power? And yet somehow when Jesus does it, it's by Satan. It's one rule for them, one rule for another. See, there really is no other explanation. There is only one conclusion, and Jesus shows it in verse 28. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, if Jesus really casts demons out of people like this man, which even his opponents had confessed, then there is only one explanation. It is by the Spirit of God. And if it's by the Spirit of God, then God's kingdom has come in Jesus Christ. And if God's kingdom's come, then Jesus is not someone we can ignore. A verdict on him is unavoidable. Now, as a teenager, I used to be pretty typical amongst my peers. I was a bit taller than they were, but uh, on the whole, I was pretty typical. I mean, I I wasn't anti-Jesus. I didn't really, wasn't horrible to Christians or anything, but I didn't take him very seriously either. I mean, Jesus, for me, was a bit like a distant relative, someone who had been there in my childhood, and we never had a kind of major falling out, but I didn't particularly want to pick up the phone and contact him. I didn't think my verdict on Jesus was that pressing. 
But in my late teens, I read accounts of Jesus like the one we've read this morning. And I soon realized that this kind of moderate, sitting on the fence, never reaching a decision, did not match the evidence. See, either I flat out deny that Jesus is from God, like these desperate Pharisees, or I have to confess that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. There is no other option. I mean, saying that Jesus is kind of moderately significant is not an option if we care about evidence and common sense. His signs show that he has brought God's kingdom. But moving on to our second point, we also see in this incident that a verdict on Jesus is not just unavoidable, but inevitable. See, many assume that uh, we can be neutral when it comes to Jesus, that as long as we're not kind of anti-Jesus, then does it really matter? But Jesus blows away the possibility of neutrality. Uh, Look at verse 30 and you'll see this. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. Now, what's Jesus mean now? Well, imagine you uh, organized a trip out to London with a few of your friends. You arranged to, to meet up, to go to London, to have a meal out, and then to watch a show in the evening. And you put the invitation out, and you say to everyone, you need to be at the Basingstoke train station for 4.30. We're getting the 4.30 train. But as you jump onto the train and the doors close behind you, you notice that there's a couple of seats that are empty. And you soon realize that two of your friends aren't there. So you give the first friend a call. And they say to you, I didn't want to go. They flat out refuse to go. They say they hate London, they hate Meals Out, and they hate shows, especially with you. (laughs) This isn't a real story, just in case you... (laughs) But you call the other friend up, and they explain to you they can never make their mind up. They ummed and erred and kind of thought they might like to go, but then they're not so sure. Would they like the show? Would they not? I don't know. And they couldn't reach a decision. And they were still thinking about it at home when the train began to pull out of Basingstoke Station. See, in some circumstances, to not make a decision is to make a decision. To not positively commit to being on the train means not being on the train, whether you're kind of anti-London and anti-going out for the night, or just someone who's apathetic. It leads to the same outcome. And Jesus says to not positively commit to being with him is to be against him. Sure, you may not think you're anti-Jesus. You may not be strongly opposed to anything the church does. But to not make a decision is to make a decision. And Jesus' point here makes logical sense, doesn't it? See, if he has brought in God's kingdom, then there's only one kingdom. God's not going to tolerate rival kingdoms forever. And if we're not with Jesus and his kingdom, God's kingdom, then we're not left standing in some no-man's land or some spiritual Switzerland. We stand with everything opposed to God's kingdom. It's worth mentioning here that this, I think, is what Jesus is getting at in verse 31 when he says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, I've come across um, some Christians with tender consciences who are really worried about this verse. Maybe there's some of us here this morning. They've said something to me like, I I really want to be saved, but what if I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit? I'm going to be condemned, even though... I want to be saved. 
But this is an example of why context in the Bible is so important. Because we need to ask the question with this verse, what have the Pharisees just been saying about the Spirit? What have they been saying? Verse 23, they've claimed that Jesus' power is not of the Holy Spirit, but the power of Satan. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is not some forbidden combination of words we might accidentally say. It's to do what the Pharisees are doing. It's to call the work of the Holy Spirit the work of Satan. And to do that is to reveal that you're opposed to God. And if you stand opposed to God, Jesus says at the end of verse 32, there is no forgiveness in this age or the age to come. So going back to our train story where you've um, invited your friends out to a meal and a show, it's like you saying, the person who rubbishes my invite will never go on this trip. Now when you say that, you don't mean that if someone speaks some horrible words about your invite, then some magic will happen where it will bar them from going on the trip, even though they might want to. You mean by that, that the person who rubbishes my invite is showing by their words that they don't want to come. And, by definition, if they don't want to come, they will never come on the trip. I often say to people, if you care so much about this warning, then take it as a comfort. See, if you care so much about obeying Jesus' words, then that's a pretty good sign you're with him. And if you're with him, you're not doing what the Pharisees are doing and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But of course, these words aren't a comfort if we're not with Jesus. And neutrality is not a viable option. To not make a decision is to make a decision. A verdict on Jesus is inevitable. It's not just the kind of angry atheists on YouTube we might see who are kind of against Jesus. It is that nice elderly lady who sits on your road, or lives on your road rather, who thinks she never needs to be forgiven. Or the people who sit around your desks at work who aren't kind of vocal opponents of Jesus, but neither do they take him very seriously as well. Or people like me as a teenager who felt that I wasn't particularly anti these things, but I always kept Jesus at arm's length. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. But why does our verdict on Jesus matter so much? I mean, maybe you hear this and you think to yourself, I still don't see why I need to change, uh, uh, come to a verdict. It's not going to change anything. Well, we see, moving on to our third point, that um, Jesus warns us otherwise. See, we may think it doesn't matter what verdict I come to, that if Christians want to have a particular verdict, it's good for them, but it's not going to change my life if I don't. Well, Jesus says otherwise in verse 36. I tell you that men and women will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, whenever Jesus says, I tell you, it is a strong warning. It's the equivalent of the triangle, red triangle sign that you see on the side of the road warning you that danger is coming ahead. And Jesus says there is danger ahead. There is a day of judgment. See, the Pharisees, they thought they could say what they liked about Jesus with no consequences. They were the establishment. They held the keys to power. But Jesus says a day is coming where that will all reverse. And your words you've spoken against me will be replayed to you. 
and they will be your condemnation. It's worth mentioning that the word careless here really means kind of empty, or literally it means without work. So Jesus is not saying that we can't have a joke, that we need to be kind of deadly serious with every word that we say for fear that those words are going to be replayed to us. But he is saying that those words that people speak against Jesus, words which are empty, they achieve nothing, they don't do any good work, they will come back and condemn them. One of the ways I like to spend my time is to watch stand-up comedy. Um, I think there's just an incredible skill in taking everyday stuff and uh, making it funny. That's the idea. But if you know the world of stand-up, you'll know that many of the comedians are often anti-Christian things. Often uh, they'll start talking about uh, Christianity and uh, as typically will misrepresent things and I'll be screaming at the telly going, do you not know, do you not know? And they don't hear me, they just carry on. And everyone kind of laughs at the caricatures. And when that happens, my heart always sinks because I think those words are going to be heard again. Words repeated back to you in front of Jesus on the day of judgment. Now, I know when Jesus speaks about judgment, it will cause lots of us to wince. Perhaps brings the tear to the eye. Perhaps for some of us, we're tempted to dismiss his warning or be fearful as Christians speaking about it outside these walls. But the more I was thinking about this this week, the more I thought, actually, do you know what? There's something refreshing in Jesus judging for words, people's words. So you may know this, but we're not short of judgment in our culture, are we? I mean, just look at the Twitter trends, the opinion pieces in the paper, the comments people put after Facebook posts. We're not short of judgment. There's plenty of people calling out for judgment against people for their words. But the judgment we see today has little to temper it. Someone can tweet a careless word, perhaps even decades ago, and then they receive trial by Twitter, and their peers become jury, judge, and executioner. And social media doesn't really have a forgiveness button. See, in our modern times, we've kind of disregarded the idea of a day of judgment. But the judgment bit has kind of remained, and it's kind of fixed in this world, and it gets carried out by people with limited perspectives and often mixed motives. See, much better, I think, to have Jesus, much more just, a judge who can see all and has got a good heart, much better than that, than the public witch hunt. But of course, even Jesus, even having Jesus as our judge is little comfort if we stand opposed to him. See, our words will condemn us. Jesus explains why that's the case. Um, In verse 34, he says, You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. See, his point there is that our words do not come from nowhere. They're they're the display screen of our hearts. This is why our verdict on Jesus is so crucial now, because it reveals where our hearts truly are. See, in our verdict on Jesus, you're getting a trailer of what is coming in the future. Many in our culture, of course, assume that our verdict on Jesus is just like any other historical figure, someone like Julius Caesar or Richard III or Oliver Cromwell, but none of these figures 
will call us before a divine throne on Judgment Day. So it's interesting, isn't it, with Brexit? I think one of the um, things that gets people so animated about decisions like that is because of the consequences that follow. That's why people get so animated, because we realize there's lots at stake, whether we leave or remain. People um, argue about it because they realize there's a lot to lose or gain. And without denying those very real concerns, its implications on us pale into insignificance compared to our decision on Jesus Christ. But as we close, as much as our verdict matters, as much as our verdict is unavoidable, inevitable, and crucial, it is only because of Jesus' work that we can be invited to make a verdict at all. See, from here, Jesus, the opposition kind of intensifies. This is the the lighting of the touch paper that uh, results in the cross. But Jesus allows that opposition to grow because he knows that if people like us are to enter his kingdom, he needs to substitute himself for people who speak careless words. In a few chapters, we're going to see Peter deny Jesus three times. And people like us have not spoken as we should. Our hearts are mixed at best. See, in a few chapters, it will be Jesus, not us, who will receive judgment as a blasphemer. See, the only one who spoke truth, who did not blaspheme the Spirit, who honored his Father with every single word from his mouth, will hear his opponents scream at him. He has uttered blasphemy. But Jesus will endure that death, a death he didn't deserve for a crime he didn't commit, because through his death, he is condemned for those who have spoke careless words so that we might be forgiven by his faithful words. See, our verdict, friends, is unavoidable, inevitable, and crucial. But because of Jesus' death, life, and resurrection, his verdict on us can be, come to me. As we close, perhaps you're, you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Perhaps you're perhaps not sure whether you're a Christian or not. And the question is for you this morning, will you take action? Will you come to Jesus? If you do, Jesus promises forgiveness and welcome into his kingdom. And for us Christians, do we grasp the urgency of this message? It's so easy, isn't it, to kind of get wrapped up in all the debates about different verdicts of lots of different things. But do we remember this verdict? Do we have a heart for our communities the, the people amongst whom God has placed us. We know people out there are like to stick in the kind of mushy middle when it comes to Jesus. Do we see that the urgency of this message that our world so desperately needs to hear why our verdict matters? Let's pray. Father, it is chilling and difficult to hear Jesus' words here of a judgment day to come, of our words being judged. But we thank you, Father, that in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness. We pray, Father, that you would comfort us with that truth if we have put ourselves with Jesus. 
And for those of us who haven't, Father, please convict us of what we've heard this morning. And we pray, Father, that you would give us a heart for those around us who do not know these things, who perhaps haven't looked at Jesus. Please help us to have the ability and willingness and desire to share this news. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.